Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. For a bit of seasonal giving, we're discounting our print-only subscription package. You can get our beautiful magazine delivered to your doorstep every week for a year for just £149 in the UK and $149 in the US. Our print-only sale is also available for gift subscriptions, so it's a saving of over £100 or $100 on the normal price. Go to newscientist.com slash print sale to get this offer. Yeah, and I also wanted to tell you about the special holiday, Christmas and New Year double issue of New Scientist magazine. It's hitting shops on the 15th of December. It's a real treat. There's a search for a mysterious long lost land. There's vegan fine dining, the world's laziest animals, there's fiendish quizzes, an exclusive short story, our review of all the biggest science stories of the year. It's absolutely a real treat get it in shops from the 15th of december or you can enjoy audio or digital versions of this issue in our app hello and welcome to new scientists weekly as you know this is the show that brings you a curated selection of the essential stories of the week our aim is to feed your curiosity i'm your host rowan hooper and i'm penny sachet welcome to the show this week, we're joined by new scientist journalists James Deneen and Madeleine Cuff, both in Montreal, and Matt Sparks in London. Welcome all. Hello. Hello. Hi. We've got a fantastic show this week. We'll be hearing from James and Maddie about the latest from the COP15 Biodiversity Summit. That's later in the show. And we've got an interview with the acclaimed sci-fi writer Adrian Tchaikovsky. We've also got a story on how to detect the warp drive signature of alien spacecraft, which I personally, is something I always need to do. Um, <laughs> and I've been, find, I've been finding out how there's a surprising amount of references to climate change in Shakespeare and how the energy transition from wood to coal as a fuel source is actually described in Shakespeare. Mm, amazing stuff. Uh, you going to read some Shakespeare for us? <laughs> I am. I'm playing Queen Titania because in A Midsummer Night's Dream, she talks about climate change. Ah, I don't remember that bit. No, I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> um, but we start with um, what hopefully could be another energy transition. This, this is the absolutely huge news this week of a breakthrough in nuclear fusion. Matt, you've been reporting all about this for us. What is the breakthrough that we had this week? So for the for the first time on Earth, we've had a controlled fusion reaction that's generated more power than it requires to run. That's pretty exciting because it's it's perhaps the biggest sign we've had so far that fusion power is is really viable. <laughs> Matt, were you uh, have you been waiting your whole career to write for the first time on Earth in a story? 
<laughs> yeah, I have, I have, and I finally got to do it. Excellent. Uh, you can retire. No, tell us first what. Um, tell us more about it. Uh, uh, you know, how has it finally happened? So there's there's two main approaches to um, working on fusion at the moment. One is one uses magnetic fields to contain plasma, and the other one uses lasers. And and this last week we've heard that one of these laser experiments at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, it's crossed that milestone that no fusion reactor of any design has has ever managed, which is to to break even. So to break even in terms of the power in and power out that it generates. What's the buzz been like amongst people you've spoken to? Is there a is this a real the real deal? So the scientists I've spoken to, they they say it's pretty big. One even mentioned the the word Nobel, um, but he mm. didn't want me to quote him on that by name. Mm. Um, but there's also this sort of pragmatic caution because we're you know we're definitely not ready to start building reactors. Yeah, so um, there's various reasons, I guess, that this isn't actually a, a useful and reliable generator of power yet. So what needs to be done for us to get to that dream? So a, a lot, uh, in short. So the, the break-even point comes with some caveats. This reactor, it works by squeezing a tiny amount of fuel with almost 200 lasers to kickstart this fusion reaction. Previously, these lasers, they've required more energy than the reaction actually puts out. So what happened last week is is simply that the the energy output of the reaction exceeded the energy output of those lasers, That's, which is not it's not a small thing because these lasers they're the world's most powerful lasers. They've got a, a peak power of five hundred trillion watts. Um, so when they fire for a very brief period, they draw more power than the entire U.S. national grid puts out. Wow. But it's not really telling the whole story because these the lasers, they're pretty inefficient. So to output the two megajoules, the lasers drew roughly 300 megajoules from the electrical grid. So we got a little bit more than three megajoules of energy out, and we had to put in either two or 300 megajoules, <laughs> depending on how you look at it. Right. So um, we need to get it to put out more than the 300 megajoules that are needed to power these lasers before yeah. this would actually kind of work as something that actually net produces energy rather than uses it exactly yeah so we we need to get the energy requirements of those lasers down which uh scientists say should be possible because they date back to you know the 1980s and 1990s or, or ideally both you know and and that's just a break even as well you wouldn't make a lot of money running a power plant that runs just above break even point but there's other problems as well. The, the reactor runs for a few billionths of a second, and then it takes hours to cool down before it can run again. So, you know, a working reactor needs to run constantly. And then there's the problem with fuel. Um, currently, it's really difficult to create these tiny capsules of fuel. You know, tiny imperfections in these round uh, capsules, even something the size of a bacteria can upset the reactions, and they need to be perfectly smooth. So we also need a cheap way of manufacturing that. I mean, are all these considered, you know, just small problems now on the on the way to commercial nuclear fusion? Now we've passed this barrier. Has the big barrier been cleared? The, I think what it what it does is it sort of proves that fusion is viable. So it's a it's a sort of a, a motivational milestone to have passed. Um, and there's certainly some some low hanging fruit to be to be had. So the the facility we're talking about. It was designed with experiments and, and sort of adaptability in mind, not necessarily generating power. So there's definitely improvements that could be made there. You know, this is 20, 30, 40-year-old technology. But all these remaining engineering problems, they're, they're pretty big. We're still a long way off plugging a fusion reactor into the grid. 
There's been quite a few announcements, haven't there, of various kind of maybe slightly smaller breakthroughs, but still technical breakthroughs in in the quest for fusion this year. And some of them have been coming from other types of of trying to do this, using things like magnets instead of lasers to kind of control plasma and all the rest of it. Do we know what's going to win out at the end? Are you backing a horse at this point, Matt? So I think uh, magnets are attracting most of the money and most of the attention at the moment, but it is this laser experiment that just hit break-even point for the first time. So it's it's not a neglected area. But there is a, a feeling amongst the people I've spoken to that magnets are the most likely designed to win out in the end. But we're seeing a lot of a lot of commercial startups doing a lot of sort of interesting designs. And uh, one scientist told me that diversity like that is probably key to getting Fusion Online quickly, you, you know, to try a lot of things very quickly and move on if they don't work. I think we're obliged to say that, um, you know, it is very exciting. Uh, you know, we've crossed this big threshold, but there's, as you say, there's a long way to go. So it's not going to be basically until the end of the century, really, is it? The second half of the century that we really get this up and going. And in other words, for people looking for a solution to climate change, we still need to go to the fusion reactor in the sky and <laughs> renewable energy to get us out of that. Yeah, I, I think so. Um you know, predictions on on how far away fusion is have, have been notoriously unreliable. But anywhere, I'm hearing this week, anywhere from 15 years to another 30 to another 60. No. So yeah, we we can't sit back and sort of wait for this to solve climate change. We certainly need to, to keep going on renewables. Well, let's go to Montreal now uh, for the latest on the biodiversity meeting. This is COP15. Maddie. You've only just got back from COP27. Uh, now you've got a bit of whiplash and you're in Montreal at COP15. What's it like there? Well, tell us what, what's at stake, because ideally we want a biodiversity treaty like we had with the Paris Accord with the Climate Treaty. But what would that look like for biodiversity? Yeah, so that's right. So the biodiversity COPs work in a slightly different way to the climate COPs, but they also have lots of similarities. And the reason why this COP, COP15, is a really big deal is because it is a once-in-a-decade opportunity to set some global goals for nature, so to to kind of set a really long-term direction for the global community, which will aim to put nature on the path to being restored by 2030 and for the world to be, this is rather ambitious, but to be living in harmony with nature by 2050. And this is really crucial, not just because obviously we need a healthy ecosystem to serve you know water to to grow food for kind of everything that kind of creates keeps human society going but it is also crucial to the fight against climate change so you don't really succeed at delivering on the promises of the Paris Agreement without solving this issue of nature so that's why this COP15 summit that we've just landed at is a really crucial one the agreement here will be a really good measure of progress to to whether we can enact the goals of the Paris Agreement essentially so I landed last night, so um, I'm still sort of trying to get my bearings at this cavernous conference centre in yeah. Montreal, and it's a bit of a weird vibe. I was expecting, given the kind of seriousness of what's at stake here and the scale of ambition that countries are talking about, I was expecting a little bit more buzz and a bit more excitement and noise, um, but it's it's pretty muted. There's not as many people here. There aren't noisy protests in the corridors. Everything's quite hushed and calm which when it comes to big global negotiations is not necessarily what you want to see. And James uh, you've been covering mining there Uh, tell us about what's been discussed so far and what's been agreed. 
Yeah, mining. Maybe a bit of an unexpected subject for a summit on biodiversity, but mining projects are inherently destructive and can have significant impacts on biodiversity as well as local and indigenous communities. So on Monday, the Canadian Minister of Natural Resources announced on the sidelines of COP15 a new alliance between Canada and six other rich countries, including the U.S., the U.K., and Australia, to try to minimize some of those impacts. Critical minerals include minerals like lithium and cobalt and copper, which are all needed for the green energy transition for things like batteries, for electric vehicles and renewable energy technology. And demand for all of them is expected to explode in coming years, which means more mining and more processing. Lots of that mining will happen in countries that aren't part of this alliance, especially in China, which dominates critical minerals mining and processing. And it's unclear how countries in the alliance would make sure mining is sustainable outside their borders. But countries in this alliance represent a gigantic market. So a commitment from them to make their critical mineral supply chains more sustainable could have a big influence elsewhere. And something that's interesting that the, the sentiment of behind the alliance, at least, is part of this larger discussion at COP15 around an agreement to end subsidies for industries that drive biodiversity loss like unsustainable logging or unsustainable fisheries, though nothing is agreed around that yet. So, Maddie, you know, it's feeling a little bit negative there at the moment. Um, you know, if this limps over the line, you know, I've heard people saying we could get a Copenhagen situation, you know, in other words, a really weak treaty like we got at Copenhagen in 2006 or eight, whenever it was. You know, if we do do that, what does that mean for biodiversity and planetary life support you know these are only every 10 years aren't they so the Copenhagen moment um, analogy is interesting because I don't think it will be the same thing as Cape Copenhagen where I mean essentially the talks f- fell apart right and what they managed to scrabble together at the end was a really weak kind of backup plan that was not what the summit aimed to do in the first place the, to kind of create that global treaty I think what will happen this time around is that they will come out with something and they will agree these goals I don't after two years of delay because of COVID I think everybody here is very keen that we leave with these new set of targets and with a direction of travel for the post 2020 framework the danger though is that it's a bit of a fudge and it's not as ambitious as it could have been. And because all of these agreements are non-binding, the way these things are drafted and worded is really important because it is then about how it's implemented on the ground. And if countries sign up to something that gives them quite a lot of wiggle room to essentially go back home and carry on business as usual, then we won't see anything like the scale of change that is needed on the ground. So the really key issues like the financing framework will determine whether or not what is actually agreed here kind of happens in the real world next year. So I think that is the, is the kind of main risk that it ends up, everybody comes out with something, it looks great on paper, but actually it's not strong enough and not um, detailed enough that it has any kind of real world impact. Right. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Thank you, Maddie and James, for joining us from Montreal. Let's take a quick break. Are you looking for a unique gift this holiday? What about a gift that helps fight global warming? With Climeworks, you can now remove excess carbon dioxide from the air in the names of your friends and family. 
So Climeworks is the leader in direct air capture. That's a technology that removes carbon dioxide from the air. And once captured, it's stored underground using the carb fix method. And this is an accelerated natural process that turns carbon dioxide into stone, where it no longer contributes to global warming. So this holiday, choose the gift of climate impact at climeworks.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. the sci-fi alert which means we're reporting on something in the news that has already been explored in science fiction and this week rowan it's warp drives <laughs> yes we've invented the warp drive um no, <laughs> i think that would be the top of the show what we found though is a way to spot the stretching in the fabric of space-time that would occur if a if a, if a warp drive is activated so yeah okay that's kind of amazing but also why are we talking about spotting something that we've we've no idea if it exists beyond star trek (laughs) (laughs) yes good question um well so this is about gravitational waves and those as you'll remember are the ripples in space-time that are formed when you know you get these massive objects colliding or moving around and they were first detected in 2015 by LIGO that's the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And that observed the ripples in space-time as like two black holes collided and merged together. So the idea then is you could use LIGO to look for gravitational waves made by an alien spacecraft if it was big <laughs> enough and moving fast enough to make these, uh, you know, these ripples in space-time. Right. So how big are we talking here? Because we're talking mm. about LIGO and gravitational waves. Black holes are massive. <laughs> yeah. that's a, So they found that the spacecraft would need to be the mass of Jupiter, <laughs> which is pretty big, <laughs> and travelling a tenth of the speed of light. So 30,000 kilometres per second. OK, so, so huge and very, very fast. <laughs> I guess these advanced aliens need a lot of room for their civilizations. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it either has to have this huge mass or if it has a warp drive, then it could literally warp space-time and then you could detect it it, using this uh, new theory. And the researchers behind this piece of work have found that LIGO could spot a craft, this kind of, you know, alien craft, if it travelled, you know, within 326,000 light-years of Earth. And they say that even more sensitive gravitational wave detectors could bring that distance closer. So this is going to be really interesting to SETI people, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. 
So I'm um, playing along with this then. Um, yes, thank you. If you, <laughs> if you did detect something, how could you tell if it was a comet or a meteor just, mm. you know, doing its thing in space or a spacecraft? Because if it's 300,000 light years away, how do we know? Yeah, well, our reporter, Leia Crane, actually asked them this and they said mm. that you could tell the difference between, say, a meteor and a warp drive because it, it's the same way you can tell whether a jet ski has gone past you or a boat because the waves they make have a different signature. And a warp drive also would have a unique kind of way of affecting the gravitational field around them. Cool. So um, I'm guessing you're not going to go for something as obvious as Star Trek as the sci-fi link here. No, I'm not actually. Um, there are. I, I went for the planet-sized spacecraft rather than warp drive, and it turns out there are some. There's one in Robert Reed's um, Great Ship series, which is aptly named, and there's one that that specifically said a spacecraft to be bigger than Jupiter. Oh, perfect. Now, we've spoken quite a bit on the podcast about the energy crisis. And of course, that was sparked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent squeeze on gas supplies to Europe. But I wanted to add some historical context to this because I was reading about an earlier energy crisis in the 16th century in England. And this was one triggered by basically mass deforestation. And that led to the first use of coal as a fuel source. So to talk about this, I'm joined by Randall Martin of the University of New Brunswick in Canada. Uh, Randall, thank you for joining us. Now, you're a Shakespearean scholar, and I was reading your book, Shakespeare in Ecology, and I was amazed by the amount of ecological references in Shakespeare. So can you set the scene for us? Yes, there was a comparable, of course, smaller scale than today and different caused energy crisis in the 16th and 17th centuries. But Shakespeare was an observer of this. I think of Shakespeare as having a triple eye for these things. He was a playwright, a professional playwright, interested in creating dramatic, exciting plays that made money. He was also a poet, a superb poet, and he had an eye for the natural world and for changes in the world that were exceptional. And the third thing is that he was, an, he had an ecologist's eye. He observed there was uh, a new limits to the consumption of resources. He had a very keen eye for the interconnectedness of things, not only in the natural world, but between the human world and the natural world and the animal worlds. So all mm. of these things, you know, we think of ecology as being, you know, everything is connected. Well, Shakespeare had a keen eye for observing that the things were connected and also things were being disrupted and changing. It sounds uh, familiar. <laughs> it sounds very, oh, these things sound very, very familiar, don't they? Yeah. They're very yeah. familiar to the kind of energy supply and security problems and food security problems that we now are facing in our world. All of those pressures, demographic pressures, climate change pressures, and rising prices meant that some people were getting rich and <laughs> um, from the rising prices and making money and building new houses or enlarging their houses or their farms and showing them off and consuming more. I mean, it's amazing what you find in plays that even the, the ones that I thought I was familiar with, like there's a bit in A Midsummer Night's Dream when yes. um, Titania says she's talking about the altered seasons um, yes. she's basically talking about climate change. She says that the spring, the summer, the childing autumn, angry winter change, the wanted liveries and the mazed world by their increase 
now knows not which is which. I mean, <laughs> she's talking about the start of the Anthropocene, basically, isn't she? Absolutely. Uh, you're, you're bang on. And that was uh, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream was written about 1594 to 5. And England had experienced catastrophic harvests and rains in the preceding two years for the two preceding uh, seasons, as it were, agricultural seasons. And uh, so he's referring to a very topical event there, uh, mm. the fact that climate change is altering the seasons. You know, at another place in, in Shakespeare, uh, Gloucester, I think it is in Henry IV, part two says, the seasons have changed their manners wow. as if the year had found some months asleep and leapt over them. And that's what Titania yeah. is referring to. And, and again, here's an excellent example of the fact that Shakespeare's taking that very topical reference to climate change, the Little Ice Age, in the period, and he's putting it into the mouths of these two fairies <laughs> in yeah. A Month of a Night's Dream and talking about the consequences of their rowing. And that's very typical of how Shakespeare weaves these ecological signs into his plays. Sometimes... Yeah in a tragic context, sometimes in a humorous context. So timber was at a premium, and there's also been a transition in, in fuel use, hasn't there, from an energy source from one to another. And this is the first, well, maybe not the first time, but we've seen, we've seen coal start being used. But this is not coal that's been mined from deep underground as we think about it now, is it? No, it isn't. The coal that was used back then, mainly, was what's called sea coal. It was called sea coal. What that really means is it was surface coal, coal right, right at the surface of the earth. And it was especially plentiful in the northeast of England. And so it was dug up there fairly easily, actually, put into uh, boats and uh, carried down the uh, eastern coast of England and up the Thames to London mainly, but also again to supply markets in the southeast. And coal was at that time a cheaper energy source than wood fuel, whose prices were rising. And so there was gradually a transition from wood fuel to coal fuel. At the beginning of the 16th century, coal supplied about 10% of England's energy supply. By the mid-17th century, it was 50%. So despite being hundreds of years old and about a different time, well, there's still a message from Shakespeare that we can take to, the, to our modern problems, isn't there? Yes, there is. Pay attention to the natural world and how we use it and how we interact with not only other human beings, but other animals, and with the non-animal, as it were, natural world, and how important that integration is. Shakespeare is superb about that, and that makes him absolutely contemporary for us as a message that we really need to learn to get ourselves out of the looming calamities of the Anthropocene. That, to me, is, is it. Shakespeare shows us how to live a better way. That was Rowan talking with Randall Martin of the University of New Brunswick in Canada. Now, next up, we're chatting with Adrian Tchaikovsky. He's a science fiction author known for his works exploring topics such as alien awareness. His latest book, Children of Memory, continues his Children of Time series with the story of a fragile human colony on a far-flung outpost and some corvids, which Yay. may or may not be sentient. 
We love that kind of thing. So here's our books editor, Alison Flood. She chatted with him about spiders, crows and inspiration from zoology. Hi, Adrian. I really enjoyed Children of Memory. So thank you for that. I wanted to start by by talking about your kind of your choice of species that you explored this time. So in Children of Time, it was a world where spiders had evolved. In Children of Ruin, you had a flourishing octopus civilization. And now in Children of Memory, you've, you're looking at what might happen if Corvids evolve. Was that always going to be the obvious next choice for you? Or were crows always the route to take? Um, I mean, in a weird kind of way, I feel I've almost gone mainstream with crows because they're with the spiders and the octopuses, they tend to be creatures that a lot of people really don't like, whereas um, crows have a fairly good press to start with. But really, my for this series in particular, my targets tend to be creatures with an unusual amount of intelligence in the natural state. So effectively good candidates for becoming a kind of a sapient species if they were given you know, a, a clear evolutionary run at it. And Corvids, so you know, crows, um, ravens, magpies, birds like that are very, very clearly one of those candidates. They have, have an extraordinary intelligence. Yeah, they demonstrate they can craft and use tools. They can understand multi-stage problems without even physically experimenting with them. They can do. I mean, frankly, they can do a lot of things um, cognitively better than I feel I can. And so it doesn't feel that they would need much of a push. They would just kind of need the right conditions to flourish um, and sort of become that that sort of dominant technological species in the way we would um, we would recognise. I mean, was there, were there any other options that you considered before you were like, no, definitely Corvids? Oh, well, there are plenty. And I mean, I mean, what are the, I would like to expand the series at some point in the future when sort of the ideas come to me. And at that point, I will probably choose a more left field species. Um, one of the things that we are discovering, um, there's been quite a flourishing of... Um, animal behavior studies in the last decade or so and it seems to be the case that wherever you look you actually find out that everything is is smarter and more adaptable and just more intelligent in a way that we can appreciate as a human than was previously believed so there there are there are an enormous number of um of potential candidates i mean i (laughs) a little voice in the back of my head suggests i'll probably do something else um invertebrate because that does tend to be my first love in the animal kingdom but Hmm. who knows one of the things i really loved about children of memory is how you explore the question of sentience and whether or not your corvids who live in a complex society and perform all sorts of feats of language and technology are sentient i mean it's a big question to tackle did you have fun with it or was it at times quite quite a head scratcher to know where you were going with it um that was particular. i mean i had a lot of fun with it i had a lot of fun with it in particular because of the um the two Corvid characters in the book, Gothi and Gethley, are just enormous fun to to write. They're basically a double act, a comedy double act. And at the same time, they they are they epitomize the sort of philosophical puzzle which is at the heart of the book, which is what actually is what is a person, what is consciousness, what is intellect. Just because something is going through all the motions doesn't mean that it is intelligent. In fact, Gothi and Gethley are quite adamant that they're not, even though they can and can argue the point quite cogently. And obviously, yeah, also as fans of the series will know, we have characters like Avrana Kern, who is a human who has been uploaded into a variety of different um, sort of artificial formats, including a, a nest full of ants, and still kind of believes she's a human up until the point when she has to think of something that happened to her and the memories just aren't there. 
And then there are, yeah, anyone who's read the second book, Children of Room, will know that we add some quite unusual characters and species in that. And we get quite a lot from that kind of alien point of view of something that really isn't a, a kind of a singular intelligent entity, except that because of its very complicated interactions, it kind of becomes one in aggregate. And the whole book is kind of exploring these different almost impersonations of sapience and sort of inviting the characters in the book and I guess the reader to think, well, what, what, what do or don't we consider to be actually intelligent in all of, the, in all of this sort of variety? Yeah, I love the way and um, the Corvids throw out these literary quotes, which are entirely apt for a situation, but they're like totally forgotten by the people who are hearing them. Like at one point where they say to strive to seek to find and not to yield, they say as they're kind of striving and seeking and finding. But people are like, what are you talking about? That makes sense. But um, <laughs> and that definitely felt like you were having fun with it, the, with the kind of the idea that the ability to parrot information doesn't necessarily correlate with with understanding or with, or with sentience. <laughs> yes. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, parroting is the, the key phrase. I mean, um, the book is dedicated to a parrot, in fact. The dedication is to uh, a parrot called Alex, who I, which was one of the highlights of my university course, was learning about Alex the parrot, who was a parrot that had been taught under laboratory conditions to talk, but not in the sense of just repeating things, but effectively understanding syntax and grammar and actually creating new words even for concepts that the parrot could have came up with. And was a, a fascinating sort of insight into the fact that actually, you know, it, it was a bit of a forerunner of the studies I, be, I, I was mentioning, the idea that actually animals are a lot more complex and they're capable of doing a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily think they'd need to in their natural habitat even. Can you talk a bit about your concept for, for sort of how the, the corvids work, the necessity for them to, to pair bond to deal with different challenges? Yes, so the, um, the the setup that the corvids find themselves in, they are part of a really quite dismally failed terraforming attempt on a quite a hostile world. And they're kind of released into the wild, and it is assumed that they are going to die, like basically almost everything else has. They're super um, annoying as well, aren't they? They're annoying, all of the humans. Yes, like, I suppose released is, is not the right word. <laughs> they're driven into the wild because, you know, as... as Curious birds will often do. They they are they are not exactly the most considerate neighbours, and they pull things apart and make a lot of noise and do their business everywhere and so forth. So they are they're driven into the wild, and it's assumed they they will die, and then they come back. And what it is discovered is effectively they have become a very different species through neurodiversity. Half of them are very very novelty fixated. They can immediately see what has changed in the environment and are very prompted to examine it. The other half are analytical. They don't have that kind of environmental awareness, but they have a kind of um, on-running um, recollection of what has happened and are able to look at the information presented by the first half and then make decisions. So they function as two halves of a brain. And also, to be honest, I'm, be I'm being a little coy and playing games because what, what we also have, of course, are we have two ravens who are thought and memory. Mm, who are the, the um, mythology yeah. sort of and they're, they're, they're the they're, they're, I do in the same way as I've dipped into Shakespeare and I've dipped into biblical references um, in the previous books in this one I have a fair amount of Norse myth not I suspect in any terribly deep and meaningful way but just because it's a nice theme and there's a lot of material there to play with that people will recognise the names and get the references of that was Alison Flood talking with Adrian Tchaikovsky about his new book, Children of Memory. And I hope someone gets me that for Christmas because it sounds great. That's all for this week. 
Thanks to our guests, Matt Sparks, James Deneen, Maddie Cuff and Alison Flood. And thanks to all of you for listening. Do help support our journalism by subscribing so you don't miss out. Uh, do buy the special holiday edition of the magazine. It's an awesome double issue. And that special print-only deal is at newscientist.com slash print sale. And also tell everyone about our show. And we'll see you next week for a special end-of-year review. Bye for now. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.